we definitely don't want to return to the previous growth path. With the economy starting to open up after the pandemic, what can be done to rebuild it in a more resilient way? Given the constrained fiscal position, how can we leverage our existing infrastructure in order to have maximum impact on growth without necessarily increasing investment expenditure in the short run? Good day, and welcome to another episode of Ursa's podcast series. My name is Margot G, and today we will be discussing the latest research conducted in conjunction with the German Development Corporation and the International Food Policy Research Institute. This research, entitled Building Back Fairer from the COVID-19 Pandemic in South Africa, identifies both short-term and long-term policies that can reduce the uneven distribution of the pandemic's burden. Bearing in mind the tight fiscal constraints and that COVID and its uncertainty are here to stay for the immediate future. With us today is Dr. Channing Ant, economist and head of the Environment and Production Technology Division at TIFPRI. Calling in all the way from Colorado, Channing has also had resident experience in Morocco and Mozambique. Welcome to today's show. It is a pleasure to have you with us, Channing. Thank you, Margot. Glad to be here. What a pleasure. So, in this research, we assume that the pandemic will serve as a catalyst for change. But this is only guesswork. It may not. And when we say that these short-term policies will not create additional strain on government finances, what does this mean? Um, I think, you know, to look at where South Africa is now, it's useful to just go back briefly. And, and I think we, we know this pretty well. But, uh, but the situation going into sort of December 2019 or the, the fourth quarter of 2019 was, was poor. And, uh, and, you know, the economy was actually contracting at that time, um, I think, and especially on a per capita basis. Uh, and growth really hadn't been present for, for more than a decade. So we definitely don't want to return to the previous growth path, which was basically no growth and no employment gain. Uh, and, and that, you know, it was a sort of a socially unsustainable path. Um, part of the issue with, with COVID is... Um, you know, many things have, have not gotten better, right? I mean, it's been very, very tough on, on families. It's been especially tough on, on the poor. Um, the, uh, the investment has been, has been low. Um, the government has, I think, quite appropriately, and we did some analysis on this, um, increased its transfer programs to, to soften the, the blow. It didn't take it away entirely. The, 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 the NIDS-CRAM survey evidence is, is clear on that point, uh, but it but helped quite a lot. And I think NIDS-CRAM is also clear on, on that point. So all of this was quite appropriate, but it leaves South Africa in a, a position where now, you know, there hasn't been very much growth really since 2007, uh, 14 years. Um, and uh, and, a, and in a, a fiscal position that was sort of not very good in December 2019 and, and is considerably worse now in, in 2021. So you, you can't just sort of government spend your way out, out of this uh, particular particular crisis. So you're, you're left with um, it, uh, policy changes basically. Uh, in terms of what are your your options to to get going, you can't do a great big huge public investment program. You don't you don't have fiscal space for that. You need to to crowd in uh, the, the the private investment and 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 you know get the economy moving uh, in different ways. Other sources of demand, in particular, you know probably sources in terms of exports and and so forth. Um, South Africa, I think we have discussion on this recently, it faces a whole series of structural constraints, and, and these are, are well known. Um, but also, there, there are a whole series of, of policy barriers and, and things that, that could be done that should help growth in the relatively uh, short term. Okay. And doing these things are, 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 is, is kind of a sensible thing to do in, in the current policy environment. Um, if you want to look at, you know, uh, any kind of a silver lining that might come out of the COVID pandemic, <laughs> there are very few choices, really. And, and one of them would be, well, you have some impetus as a consequence of COVID and, and the current situation that you're in to make difficult policy reform choices. And, and there's no doubt that these are difficult or we would have made them, you know, South Africa would have made them many years ago. If it was easy to do these things, then they would have been done. Um, but but it's not easy to do them, um, and and so therefore uh, we we sort of the South Africa was sitting for quite some time at a, at a very kind of low growth uh, equilibrium, and and the question is can we use this this moment now 
to, to break out of that low growth trap uh, and put in place uh, a cycle of growth, which then brings in the, you know, important to note the, the, the revenues, state revenues, which would then really help you to address some of these longer term structural constraints. It's not that you don't need public investment, you do. It's just it has to be financed somehow. And, yes. and financing with growth at, in the current uh, position of, you know, the, the debt levels the state has um, uh, is 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 the most plausible way to go. So how do you get to growth? That's that's, yeah. the, that's the that's the one of the burning issues right now. So what I love about this paper is that it is very practical given the current situation. But before we go into those policy questions or those policy recommendations, like you said, we need to look at the past. And in your paper, you also mentioned something called the seventy-seven pager and how it was praised by the Economist magazine. What is this? And as you mentioned, since we have projections now with very limited government consumption, where can we look to stimulate the growth based on the 77 pager? Okay. So the, the 77 pager was published, I think, back in August 2019. And you have a preface in there. And the finance minister at the time uh, is, you know, says basically South Africa is facing a slow burn economic crisis. And uh, so the 77 pager came out and it was really a microeconomics focused, it's sort of sectoral reform focused um, program to, to try to bring about a, a faster structural rate of, of growth. And uh, uh, I think the 77 pager is full of sensible ideas and uh, uh, it's, it has a name um, and I should remember what it is, but it's, it's basically the national treasury strategy document okay um and and it's i think it's an important document and and there's i think a lot of what was happening the treasury was lining up to do these things the pandemic hit and and you know the treasury uh, had you know other crises had a crisis to deal with and and so they started to deal with that it is perfectly clear that that Treasury and other institutions are, are taking the 77 pager seriously. If you look at uh, the president's, uh, many of his policy proposals uh, over the past year or so, um, you can go back to the 77 pager and you can find the, that idea sitting there. So uh, the 77 pager is, is being operationalized. And, and I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, part of this paper's goal was to sort of look at, okay, what's in the 77 pager? What's there? If it's, if it's just there and they're operating, you know, people, we, we think it's a good idea and it's being operationalized, then fine, we don't, we don't even really talk about it, actually. Um, but what, what, what things might you uh, pick up and, and highlight a little bit more, especially in light of sort of the, the even tighter fiscal constraints that, that we might be facing um, in South Africa, as opposed to you know, back in back in back in two thousand, back in yeah. two thousand nineteen. So that's the intent of, of, the, of the current paper. Okay, so we do operate in this world of tight fiscal constraints in South Africa at the moment. And that being said, earlier this month we had the UN Climate Change Conference, and that placed a lot of focus on renewable energy and food insecurity. Fortunately, South Africa managed to receive over eight and a half billion dollars worth of funding, which hopefully will be wonderful going forward. And I guess that's in the medium to long term. And how can we use food system? I just want to bring you in from your climate change and if we experience, how can we improve food systems to drive growth and employment in South Africa in a more immediate future? The, the, the food system, you start with sort of food system and agriculture is one of the sectors that's highlighted in the 77 page or as a sector with, with promise. You go and you look and, and you take a, a fairly long run sweep um, uh, you know, you go all the way back to sort of the immediate post-apartheid period, right? Um, and, and at that time, not surprisingly, there really wasn't all that much um, regional trade that, that was occurring. Um, you know, South Africa kind of sat there. It wasn't uh, integrated as strongly as it could have been in, into, the, into the region. Not that that's over, but South Africa's way, way, way more integrated into the, into the region and into the rest of, of, of Africa. And this is taking place in a lot of it in terms of foreign direct investment into other other countries in Africa. Some of this is in banking, insurance, uh, engineering services, but a lot of it is in um, 
grocery stores uh, in, the, in the, the supermarkets. And the, the supermarkets are also serving as a, a conduit for South African goods, particularly food and processed food into the region. And this has been a, a kind of a, a success story of, of regional integration. And it's, it's created a, a, real, a real market. Um, one of the things that's necessary is, is this has to be a two-way street. Um, you know, we can't just uh, can't just export um, processed products out to the region, and, and and then basically at this point, a lot of the trucks go up hauling processed products from South Africa to Lusaka, and then they just come back empty. And that that's not a long-term trade arrangement. So we need to get the two-way street going. Um, that that's one really important part of of the message. And this just means you know having. Is standard comparative advantage in economics. What is South Africa relatively good at? Let's specialize in those things. And what can the region do that they're relatively good at? Have them specialize in those things. And this will create a more efficient regional economy that can then start to export to, to the rest of the world. So that's that's one element. And this gets to it's kind of that's a bit the long-term uh, perspective. Um, and, it, and it's an area of what you might call revealed comparative advantage of South African exports are growing uh, in that field. So, you know, the comparative advantage is, is revealing itself. And there's a few structural things that, that we need mm. to deal with. Um, in the short term, uh, there is this, you know, very emotive and difficult land reform program, right? That yes. is causing, uh, you know, the obvious this is a concern and, and an opportunity. Both. Um, it's meant to address inequities that, that are clearly there. Uh, so <laughs> um, it's not the case that that you know you don't want to abandon the land reform program. You want to address uh, these inequities, um, but the sort of uh, the sweep of the program uh, has to be clear um, so that people can invest in the sector if they if they don't. They feel like you know they're going to be land reformed in in two years or three years or five years or even you know eight or ten. Then it, it it's a real inhibitor to to investment in the in the sector. So coming up in the short term with clarity on on the land reform program is is I think uh, a, a a really big point. Mm-hmm. Um, going going back to the longer term. The, the other opportunity that, that exists in, in South Africa and in many countries is, um, you know, basically having to do with food and food consumption. And uh, we you have a shift globally, really, where, uh, you know, especially in, in poor countries, we used to worry about people being hungry. Uh, and this is still the case for, you know, 8, 10% of the world's population. So it's, it's not a, a non-issue, but it's a lot less of an issue in, in South Africa now. And really uh, getting a healthy diet instead of getting enough calories is not so much a problem. It's getting the micronutrients, eating a healthy diet, that, that is the big issue and making that diet available and, and affordable. Um, I think, you know, this, in, in significant measure means, you know, eating more fruits, eating more vegetables, eating sort of a, a healthier set of food. And I think this actually meshes with the land reform um, program reasonably well. You know, you're not going to have a, we don't have sort of anywhere in the world um, wildly efficient uh, maize farms, uh, you know, low value dry land agriculture. It, it tends not to be split up into very tiny units. Um, and and you know, basically you can think of it in, in terms of, you know, what does a small, what is the small farmer's advantage? Small farmer's advantage is that they can pay time and attention to, to their land, right? And if it's not too far away from them, then they can easily go from the house to, to their land on a, on a regular basis and, and, and check up on it and, and manage it very closely and very well. Um, and this lends itself towards higher, higher value production, right? I mean, you know, you, you, if you get a great maize yield, that, that's great, but it's still only maize, right? A hectare of maize is worth, you know, wh- whatever it's worth, uh, but, but a hectare of vegetables can, is worth a lot of money, uh, a lot more money. And so, you know, if you're paying time and attention to vegetables or fruits or, 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 or other higher value lean meats, things like that, crops, then you have a, a much greater upside. And that's where I think the land reform program needs to go because that's going to play to the basic comparative advantage of, of smaller farmers and, 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 and sort of 
helps to militate if you group them together. So you instead of having small farms all over the place, you know you have a, you have small farms and they're, and they're grouped together. Then you can try to mitigate against their disadvantages, which is um, in marketing. You know they're only selling relatively small volumes, and uh, and in input purchase because they're also buying. So they have trans high transactions costs on both of those sides. If they're together, they can form some kind of cooperative. They can sell as a group. They can buy as a group, and they can they can reduce these these transaction costs. So that's that's kind of the basic model, and it gets you over to this issue of 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 um, you know having a sort of holistic package of policies that are expanding employment in small farms, producing the vegetables and fruits, healthy diets that you that you want, and then getting those to to consumers. Um, such that you deal with some other problems like really high rates of obesity in South Africa, especially uh, among women. I mean, we're getting up towards American levels, which is um, high. Uh, so, <laughs> so you know, you don't want that. Uh, we, we know what it's like here in the U.S., and and that's not that's not what you want. So, <clears throat> I think between the agricultural policies. Um, that are already in existence, the land reform policy that's already in existence, and some of the social protection policies, you know, these income grants and these kind of things. How is it that we then set up a system that, that makes it much, much easier for consumers to choose a healthy diet such that, you know, your, your rates of child obesity aren't, aren't growing at, at the current levels, hopefully are, are coming down, and you're getting all of these other benefits um, at the same time. That's a longer-term uh, policy challenge, but but one that that actually um, is more or less, I think, a rearrangement of investments that you're already making, as opposed to a whole new big investment program. So it fits in in the in the fiscal constraints sort of box, um, and and you can if you can, and this is hard, obviously, try to get a little more certainty, especially for example this kind of a strategy with, uh, with land reform in an initial phase where we're really headed towards um, smaller farms that are producing higher value goods on in, in grouped areas. And we're gonna go with that uh, for, for, uh, for a period of time. Then, then, uh, then, then that might reduce the uncertainty in, in other areas as well. Uh, okay. and, and certain things would then be left alone. Yeah, and I, I like that, um, you know, they, so I've, I've got a Greek blood and uh, there's a big philosophy about how we should make food our medicine and not medicine our food. And uh, it's so important to, you know, because a lot of the medicine comes from food originally and it's a really important way to uh, look after one's body. But now when you speak about these land reform uncertainties, what are the uncertainties that need to be clarified at the moment? In land reform? Yeah. I think there's just a huge degree of uncertainty and, and this I haven't looked at, you know, in, in, in the last, very recently, I've been distracted by the COVID um, crisis, which, which a lot of people have. So I couldn't say that I knew all of the announcements that, that are going okay. on now. Um, but, but in a way, I, I think there are arguments before that the, the you know, the, the, has the potential to paralyze the entire sector. If, if everything is, is under, um, under land reform, um, concern, then, then uh, you know, it, it becomes a, a difficult environment in which to plan and invest. I think another point that, that we could make is, especially if you're thinking about higher value crops and, um, you know, smaller farms that are producing higher value crops leading to these, these healthier diets and, and so forth, you have to think of it as land and, and water reform. And and because you, you need the water um, to to make those those crops, and in a way this increases the upside because I think you have a much much greater chance of, of success. It also increases the downside because if you just sort of remove both land and water from really efficient operations and 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 have you know small operations that, that somehow don't don't succeed, then then you really have um, you know potentially caused some more damage up, upstream. So, so moving um, deliberately and and carefully uh, is 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 a, is a smart thing uh, in this. But but I think that's that's probably you know the, the strategy with the, the broadest chance of success. Of course, very interesting and definitely the sustainable holistic approach matters. 
Now, speaking of that, another significant issue that you raised in your paper pertains to the level of skills in the economy. Now, this I found very interesting. So if you haven't yet read this paper, our listeners, it is a wonderful paper to read. And one statistic that really stood out for me was that if we allowed about 11,000 skilled workers with experience into the economy, it could grow our economy by 1.2%. Could you tell us some more about this? Right. So this is a, a bit of a long story, but <laughs> if you go back once again to, to just the, the immediate post-apartheid era, right, and you look at the, the wage differentials between people with, you know, sort of basically maybe primary school education or less, right, the, those kinds of workers, and, and people with tertiary education or more plus some experience, so people over 35 with, with, um, with, with, with more tertiary or more education, then you can, you can develop a ratio of, of, you know, this is the wage of these, you know, skilled and experienced people versus sort of an unskilled wage, and that was relatively high. That's not at all surprising in the context of, of apartheid, right? So then you have the fall of apartheid and you have a whole new economy that comes into, into place. And what happens? That ratio rises and it just rises constantly. It's been rising so far as the data tell up until this day. We don't have the data for this day, but up to the most recent time we had data, this basic ratio has been rising and it has been, uh, you know, according to the people who really look at inequality, Murray and others, wages are the big driver of inequality in, in this economy. So what is happening here? We, you know, we had a, 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 a you know, governments far more committed to, to equity uh, since 1994 than, than, than previously across the whole sweep of the economy. And yet this ratio is rising. And, and there's a couple of factors to that. And, and you know, one that's important to mention is, um, is the, there was a need and a desire, and appropriately so, to increase government spending and services, to get better services to people in South Africa. And it turns out that government services are skill intensive. You need skilled people to deliver really good government, government services. So the government itself was a big pull on, on, on skills. Um, and that's that's part of the that's part of the story. Uh, the 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 other part of the story, which I think we didn't fully appreciate, uh, perhaps back at the time of uh, you know when when we had the, the switch, is you know South Africa relative to Europe, Japan, the United States, uh, Canada, places like that, it is not a skills abundant country, um, but relative to its neighbors, it is. Uh, Hugely, and uh, and what we've seen, and I talked about it before, is this massive move of of South Africa uh, into Africa, and uh, and that also has has been uh, a driver, and in particular, uh, services have been um, have moved uh, the the relative to what you saw in in ninety five ninety six. So a lot of South Africa's export mix. Um, has been uh, relatively skilled intensive. Um, finally, you know, the South African economy is formal. There's a very small informal sector. And so to get into that formal economy requires a certain level of, of skill. So any growth is going to bring um, some skilled people with it. And so, so what, you've, what we've tended to see is you know, high wages and that driving inequality for particularly very experienced you know, at the very top uh, was sort of high on on the on skills kind of kind of ladder and uh, and that is basically an indication of shortage right if the price is going up it's an indication of shortage and it's something so it's something the economy really wants <laughs> and it's having trouble getting it uh, and and so you know, this is this, the obvious long-term solution to this is let's educate South Africans. Let's, 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 let's get them going. And, and the good news is, I mean, there was a lot of really depressing news about kind of, especially grade school level um, education. Um, but, but that finally seems to be turning around some of the more recent uh, analyses showing that, all right, um, there is movement here. That South Africa is is moving up. The, the people, kids have been in school. That that's been the case. Uh, but but the quality is increasing 
at the at the grade school level, right? South Africa has had from the beginning and continues to have really good university systems. So that's also good news. And uh, and I think that that uh, you know the the we've seen you know a, a huge increase in in you know sort of the diversity of the studentry uh, within South African universities and and even in what they call research intensive universities. This is now uh, a university system that is far far more reflective of the demographic balances of South Africa uh, than that that was. It's not not fully reflective today of, of everything, but but it, boy, it's a it's a great big huge progress. So a lot of progress there, um, and 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 that's good news. But that's still uh, a very very long run solution. The other issue is that you know universities produce basically twenty three year olds, right? That that's that's what they give you uh, at at the you know or twenty four or twenty five, right? And um, nobody groups together 24-year-olds and tells them as one big group to go do a massive and complex infrastructure project. They just don't do that. No organization in the world does that. And it's because they won't succeed. They don't know how. They've been educated. They don't know how to do a great big huge infrastructure project or, or really almost anything. They've sort of been at the university. Um, so they need to link up with uh, uh, more skilled people who build big projects before who know how to do these things, who know how to make teams, and they can make these university people productive, right? So I think the part of the nub of the problem, there's two problems that are going on right now, is we have this sort of skills shortage problem at, at the top, right? And, but it's in the data, you're sort of seeing some growth in unemployment amongst tertiary educated workers. But we know that the growth in unemployment amongst tertiary educated workers is really concentrated among 23, 24, 25, whatever, young, young people who are just getting out of tertiary. And, and the, the problem is two things. First, the economy is growing too slowly for them to, to be picked up. And second, um, the, 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 mix isn't, the mix isn't there. They need mentors, basically, to make them productive, right, in order to, to get things um, going. And so uh, this has been, and I think this has been the case for, for quite a while. It's recognized in the 77-pager, and I think it's still it's still coming through. There's more and more research that, that's been coming out that, that, that this problem is still present. So, you know, one way to, to do this is to um, bring in skilled people from abroad. Uh, and I think, you know, South Africa actually has a lot of chance um, to do that. It's it, that this is a matter of, you know, it's a societal choice, um, but it's just a matter of changing some words on a piece of paper. All I got to do is give them a visa and, and, and away they, and away yeah. they go. So it's not that hard. Uh, you know, we can talk about all the details and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we're not talking about, you know, a, you know, a 500 billion rand investment to build a highway from A to A to A to B. We're talking about changing some words on a piece of paper so that when that person arrives in, in at the Johannesburg Airport, they get a visa and a way they can go go and go and work. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's a different order of of problem. And the the reason you get such a, such big impacts is is first you when you bring these skilled people in, you know they're they earn they earn a fair amount of money. Right, so um, they're they're going to be they're going to be quite productive uh, right away. Um, we don't think you know that this is the the problem at lower levels is there's just not enough demand for what you call unskilled or semi-skilled workers. So you're mm -hmm. going to increase you know that that demand for for those workers and that supply exists. The other thing that South Africa has is. Uh, efficient capital markets, right? You can tap those markets through, through the private. So in terms of if that, you know, worker that, that you brought from Uganda or India or Canada or, you know, Germany or, or wherever it is, you know, needs a bunch of capital and needs a computer or, or some kind of thing, then, you know, the formal sector firm that's, that's bringing this person in can easily invest in, in, in those sorts of things. The final point, and I think this is also key, and, and a very different thing from, from sort of trickle-down economics, right, is you're going to get these multiplier effects almost for sure, 
right? Especially if they bring their families, right? It's possible that you might get a worker who shows up and works in, say, a South, Af South African insurance industry and, and lives as cheaply as possible and sends all of his or her rand back to their family in, in Uganda, that's possible. Um, but if they're coming, you know, with their families or spending a lot of time, we know they're going to need an apartment. They're going to need to send their kids to school. They're going to eat. They're going to go to restaurants. Mm. They're going to need a car. They're going to do all of these things. South Africa, actually, those goods that I just spoke about, the apartment, the, the, even the car, the food, all that's produced locally. Right? So it's a big, big demand boost for stuff that South Africa produces right away. And so you get this, this demand push, uh, which is what the economy really needs. And so those workers are, are a huge lever on, on, on economic activity for, for, for all the reasons that, that we're discussing. One, they really yeah. deal with the supply side constraint that we're hearing about labor, skilled labor shortage, highly skilled labor shortage, not, not, not 22 year olds. We need 35, 40, 50 year olds who know how to you know, run big projects or you know, do complex tasks. Uh, yeah. and, and, then, and then the fact that they will be buying it inside the economy. And, and we're really confident they're going to do that because you know, how else are they going to live? Uh, you know, unless, like I said, you're just getting a few lone wolves in who are sending all their money back to, uh, uh, to, 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 to Joburg so, or, or to, to their, their home country. So, yeah. But that's, that's just a matter of designing the program. That's going to happen, but, um, but, but designing the program such that you, you tend to get um, the other sort, which is what you want a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. And I think your final point that you just made will help answer what I'm going to ask you is how skeptics would feel. I mean, so when you spoke about bringing in 11,000 workers roughly to help our economy grow so much, in my mind, that is not a lot of people at all. I mean, if we look at how many people lost their job during, at uh, General, Electric, General Electric during the 2008 global financial crisis, that was 47,000 people that were retrenched. So we're looking at not even a quarter of that and bringing that amount of workers in and then in the South African context, it's not big. And if we were to look at, at skeptics and say, but what about local employment? What will happen to our unemployment? What would you say to them? Okay, so you have you have this dual situation. It's this situation has persisted for forever, right? And it's not uncommon, right? The, the the unemployment rate globally amongst highly skilled and experienced people is very low. Uh, people with with you know a lot of demonstrated skills and a, you know a demonstrated ability to bring value to whatever organization it might be or firm or whatever. They, they tend to get higher, right? Um, the, the unemployment problems are tending to be either, you know, sort of weird structural things where all of a sudden, you know, we have a very specialized set of skills and, and all of a sudden it disappears or um, at, at lower skill levels. And in the in the South African case, it, it's, it's, that it's there all very, very much at, at, the, at the lower skill levels. So this policy, no doubt is, you know, going to drive an increase, a decrease in unemployment, an increase in employment amongst the kind of low and, 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 and semi-skilled, right? What will happen for sure is somebody like you, Margot, who's, you know, moving <laughs> into the skilled and experienced range, right? You know, someday, sometime, there's going to be a job you want, and you might apply for it. And, and the firm says, ah, I found somebody from France. And this guy from France is, is actually better qualified than you. And we're going to fly this guy from France down. He's going to work here for three years and you don't get this job, right? That, that's going to happen, right? And you're going to get all those, those stories. That's a success story. That means the policy is working, right? Because mm -hmm. I have full confidence in you and lots of other people like you that you will be able to find another job, right? That, you know, you're going to be able to come up with, with something. It may not be... Maybe this one was perfect and you're very upset at this French person for coming and taking it. Uh, but, but in terms of your, your ability to find a job, you will find a job. The other thing that we tend to find, and this is the only way really to explain the experience of, you know, really from, from post-World War II, where we've seen this massive, massive growth in the supply of people with tertiary education, but also growth in, in their wage. And, uh, and, and this really the only way to explain this is, is that 
you know, skilled people generate sort of technical change inside the economy that that actually increases demand for for skilled people. So yeah. you're gonna you're gonna build that up. So at, at the at the very top of the income scale, um, you're gonna get some competition, and you're gonna get some hopefully some wage. You're, well, you get some wage cooling. In other words, you're not gonna have this growth, but what you're talking about now is you since 1994 and even prior to that, you had the, you've had huge unemployment uh, and and relatively low income growth amongst the you know, households that depend on unskilled or or semi-skilled labor, which is the vast majority of people. Right over that same 30 almost 30 year period, um, we've seen. Um, growth at the very top of the income scale and, and a lot of it. So at the very top, these highly skilled, highly experienced people have been doing very, very well. It's a recent paper by Ingrid Willard and others that shows that exactly. And it's mostly wage. Right? So these have been the winners of the post-apartheid era, right? The large majority of people have not experienced the kind of growth that they were told they would get. And, and that they have a right to expect. And so what this policy does is says, you at the very top of the income scale have to, for a period of time, compete with the rest of the world. And we're gonna, in terms of you know, people coming in now, this actually is probably a very short run uh, sort of sacrifice on their part. Your life, you know, if we take you as a very skilled person, <laughs> you get heading into that realm is, more closely, I mean, you know, it's possible that you would be able to um, create a, you know, fantastic lifestyle for yourself within a stagnant South African economy. Right? That's possible. But it's much more likely that you will be able to create uh, a great livelihood for yourself within the context of a growing South African economy. And, and this is, in the end, what you want. So I think that even for the highly skilled and highly experienced people, this is the right policy over time. But the final point goes back to young people, whom we also want, right? Here we've told them, go to school, you know, we're gonna increase the quality, they did it, they worked, then go to university, they've gone, they've gone to university, they got out, there isn't a job, right? And part of the problem there is just this lack of mentors. Let's give them the mentors that they need to be turned South Africa into a really dynamic central hub inside of Africa and inside the global economy. That's what you want. Uh, and, and, and I think this policy helps you in that direction. And, and, and it's, it's in that sense, you know, uh, a phenomenal black empowerment tool, right? If you use it properly, and if you think about it in, in the right way, this is what that young recent graduate who never graduated from college before can't call their mother and father and ask you know, what did they do after they graduated from college because well their mother and father didn't graduate from college and nor did their uncle or their aunt maybe anybody they know you know what what do, what do we what do i do how do i get a job how do i navigate these this this environment like we need to have the mentors and a sufficient number of them to really start to pull that group into this, uh, you know, into a dynamic. And, and we're talking about uh, really supporting industries that are great places to work in, finance, insurance, um, this growth of supermarkets worldwide, all of these assets that are actually going really, really well. Let's build on that and, and, and get, the, get, get young people, get more opportunity for young people to go into those, those industries, yeah. healthcare. So that, that, these are great jobs. Let's 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 yeah. let's realize this 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 promise that, that and you can. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense, and and I like what you're saying about you know the movement of skilled and experienced workers, and I guess it also works both ways. You know, we've seen a lot of skilled and experienced workers here leaving, which is why you know as you mentioned, this has been one of the issues we've had in the first place. And how then can we create an environment to keep skilled and experienced people happy and stable? in our country so that they don't have any incentive to leave. Right. I think that, you know, when you had, um, if you go back to the, 
again, want to go back to the post-apartheid period, you had sort of a, a pent-up demand amongst people, you know, who could travel to, to actually travel, right? And this sort of the opportunities were circumscribed prior to 1994 and became open um, after 1994 in a bigger way. And so, so a lot of what you saw was, was first just, uh, you know, a certain group of South Africans that just didn't want to be a part of a multiracial project and they left. Okay, fine. And then you had a group that, well, you know, I just want to spend a few years in Europe. Uh, you know, I've never had a chance, young people, whatever. And, and that was another group. And those groups, I think, have, have tended to, 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 flow, to flow back and back and forth. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a quality of life issue. And this is part of the reason why, you know, I, I'm sort of saying that if you're in South Africa and you're, you're a skilled person, um, your, your prospects for, you know, having you know, the, the kind of livelihood that you want is much, much better in, you know, in a context of growth. So doing things to get that context of growth, that ranges opportunities, people are forward looking and, and so forth. And, 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 you know, gets the kind of quality of life that, that you want. Um, that, that will hold people uh, into place. I think, um, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's hard to know what the net flows are. I, I'm not sure that we have the greatest of statistics on that in terms of, you know, people, people coming and, and, and going because, you know, people have left and, and then they decided that living in, you know, the rain in London, in a tiny apartment, isn't actually the greatest thing in the world. And I'm sure you know people, you know, gone to London and come back. Right. Um, so so um, that 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 flow is there. But, you know, there's there's I think no doubt that South Africa offers a chance to, you know, for, for a very, uh, you know, there's people, a lot of people living a very nice lifestyle in South Africa. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, and this is attractive to 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 many, many people. Uh, and I, you know, it, you know, uh, let's look at the downside of this. Suppose that you offer to, you know, formal sector firms with good standing in the South African economy, the ability to hire, which was kind of at, at above a certain pay level, right? So you've got to pay, you know, a, a substantial amount and, and you just assume that firms will be paying this amount for people that have skills and experience because that's why they're willing to pay that person, right? So, and they can come and work. This is very similar to what Denmark did. This is not an uncommon policy. Denmark did exactly this. You know, any firm can get them, and uh, and 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 they can come. And, and you know, okay. So what's the worst thing that happens in my view? Uh, well, they don't come. Okay. So you know, but it wasn't like we built a bridge at a hundred billion rand and nobody drives on it. It's like we changed the word on a few, a few words on a piece of paper and and nobody came. So I mean, you know, we wasted a little bit of time passing this law. Um, which isn't a good thing, but it's not like we've hurt, hurt anything. Um, if you bring people in, uh, then, like I said, you will get, I mean, they will drive, drive employment uh, in the, the lower skilled levels. But because of these multiplier effects that we really are very, very confident are, are going to uh, come into place. Yeah. So, you know, you've got, you've got this upside and, and, you know, I think a relatively circumscribed downside. And like you say, the, you know, the population of South Africa is about 60 million people, We're talking 11,000. This is tiny. Uh, you know, I think I put in the paper the share of the population, share of the workforce. It, it isn't very large. It's a very, very notable um, yeah. impact. Yeah. So speaking of skilled and experienced people, Channing, one of your interests, I believe, is geospatial analysis. So now looking at South Africa's current infrastructure, which still has deep roots from the apartheid era, how can we use our existing infrastructure to reduce inequality where possible? Right. So this is also an area that we've known about for a while. And many people have written some really great stuff. Um, Andrew Kerr and others down at, down at UCT looking at, at, these, at these issues. And, and basically, you know, you inherit what you inherit, and uh, and and you know, 1994, you had, you know, policies that really pushed workers into these townships, and that the jobs weren't there; they are uh, the jobs are 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 somewhere else, right? And uh, and and, you know, I think the long run solution is to, you know, there's some structural change that could occur, um, you know, better infrastructure 
more jobs near to the townships, you know, sort of big think urban planning that that requires a fair amount of public investment to 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 pull off, right? Um, in the shorter term, you just have to look at okay, what's going on? What 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 can we do now? And what's the problem? And part of the problem, it's quite clear, is that it's expensive and it takes a long time for a lot of people to get to work. And mm -hmm. at, the, at the end of the day, go and you do the analysis. I mean, they're earning some rands, but it costs a lot to get there, costs a lot to get back. And, and sitting in a minibus for three, four hours a day is just not a very pleasant thing. Uh, and, and you can understand why people wouldn't want to do it, um, and and it's it's a it's a barrier to to jobs and and job creation. And part of the reason that they sit there for so long is that that there's there's just a lot of congestion and traffic on on the roads, and and this is uh, what's going on. Um, I think that you know if you think a little bit outside the box here, you have in South Africa as well as all sorts of African cities. This very well-developed minibus industry, and uh, and and often this is kind of looked at as as a liability that oh gosh you know we need to get to bigger buses or do things differently, um, but you know on, in today's world uh, we have all this computerization we have all sorts of possibilities to work up you know how do we match riders with minibuses in the way that Uber does to get people quickly back and forth. Instead of trying to get rid of minibuses, why don't we create lanes for them on, on the highways that, so that they move quickly and that unskilled workers and, and these semi-skilled, the people that are you know, having the toughest time, uh, both in the long run and in COVID, can actually get to their work. You know, if you can, if, if these, it's not that far. If, if those minibuses are moving at 80 kilometers an hour, they're going to get there fast. If it's just the problem is they're moving at ten, um, so or you know frequently. So we want them. If we could get them there more quickly, then you can really, really uh, improve the the sort of the quality of life and the amount of time and so forth that, that people have in order to you know cook yeah. a healthy meal for their family to to you know do other things, have a little more leisure time, uh, play with their kids. All, all of these things that 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 people want to do. Now, of course, highway space is limited. That's the problem, and we're also saying. So again, who's going to be the loser here if you create special lanes for for, for minibus riders? Well, it's people who own private cars. Um, and uh, and once again, but these are the people that have been the relative winners. People in minibus are the relative losers. And uh, and and you know, you might think about uh, you know, okay. There's a relative here. The other thing that, that I think you can think about is, you know, private cars, it's not that much fun sitting in your private car in traffic either. So, you know, you have these same technological advances. And, it, and you know, if you expand your mind with respect to what the minibus sector is, you know, you can have a minibus that's a low-cost minibus that, that if you're, you know, working at a low-skilled job in somewhere and you're, you're earning you know, not so much more than the minimum wage, then you'll want to take a you know, low price minibus. But if you're, you know, if you're, you know, have a good job with a bank or something like that, um, and, and you don't really want to sit in a, in a minibus, but, but maybe um, there could be minibus services or, you know, that, are, that have bigger seats and some wireless connection and, and whatnot uh, that, that, you know, you could use a sort of Uber type app to, to get to work uh, back and forth. So, you know, if each one of those more luxury minibuses takes three cars off the road or four um, at, at high, high, high times, then everybody's moving faster and, and you're all winning. Uh, so, so these are the kind of, I think, outside of the box sorts of, of solutions that, that are necessary in, are possible in today's world. Uh, in terms of the technological uh, advances and are sort of appropriate in the sense that we just don't have the public money to, you know, make the roads bigger yeah. um, by all, you know, put in trains, run subways. That's not going to happen. 
um, over the next few years. So what do we do now to make the infrastructure work better for people, especially people who on the chin now before, before Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the, the use of lanes. I know in Cape Town, at certain hours, the certain lanes are only available for use of public transport, and it does work very well. The aspects of uh, using apps down the line would require a bit more structural change in terms of data availability and perhaps Wi-Fi on things, but certainly a long-run perspective. Thank you so much, Channing. <laughs> you're welcome yeah a lot of people have phones so yeah. uh you know you, you there's still a possibility to, to get to these things and this, definitely this is do yeah and, and you, ideally, if, if they could all be electric cars would be, that, would be that, ideal that's that's that's, <laughs> com- that's coming next and and uh you know and then someday they're going to be autonomous drives so you're going to get the, the minibus drivers wondering what they're going to do but yeah but we'll see <laughs> what happens next on that great thank you so much Channing I really appreciate it Um, what we've learned is there are just so many ways or so many options still available which are relatively cheap to implement and as you mentioned encouraging immigration of skilled and experienced workers removing uncertainty about land distribution and optimizing bus lanes just to name a few as you know I could chat for hours and I find this really interesting is there anything else you'd like to add no, I think we're, we've covered it. Um, good luck with this. And, and um, well, we'll look forward to see what, what, uh, now what uh, you said. Um, is this a moment when, uh, when you know, we're going to see uh, a move to make the, the reforms necessary to put, put growth in place? Um, and uh, I, I hope they do. Um, I, hope, I hope that this, this opportunity is seized. And I think actually there's a lot of signs that they are. Like I was saying, if you look at what was written in the 77 page and you look at what the government is trying to do, those are often the same things. And, and so there, there, there is a movement. And, uh, you know, um, uh, South Africans, I think, you know, I travel around a fair amount, notable for their optimism. And, yeah. um, you know, and for the pessimism, right? So they're, they're kind of a jagged people, I would think. But but I think there's a real opportunity here, hopefully, to move from what really has been a very difficult period, there's just no doubt about it, um, to, to a much, much more optimistic one. And, and I think people in South Africa really want, they, they like optimism. And uh, and, and coming, coming to this, you know, uh, I think it's, it's possible, and hopefully we can start a virtuous circle versus what, what's been, been going on for, for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And uh, to our list, and thank you. So to our listeners, should you wish to learn more about how we can build back our economy with more resilience, join our live discussion, which will be taking place on Wednesday, the 24th of November at 3pm South African Standard Time. And uh, Channing has some interesting articles coming out and some news releases later on. So hopefully uh, we look forward to seeing those too. And also to our listeners, a big thank you. Please follow Ursa on our social media channels and share this podcast with anyone you may know that's interested in learning more about building back South Africa's economy in a post-pandemic world. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Bye-bye.